0: Welcome to the Doxa Church podcast. Doxa Church exists to see the east side and beyond saturated with the glory of God in the everyday stuff of life. For more information, go to doxa-church.com. If you're with us and you've been walking through Mark with us, you know we're right now in chapter 3 of Mark. So if you have your Bibles, please open up to Mark chapter 3. We're going to look at several verses, 7 through 35. It's a big chunk of, of Scripture. It's a great passage. Uh, I, I trust uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can always get one coming in. So Please make sure you walk out with one if you don't have one. We want you to have a Bible that you have as your own. We have them on the shelves out there in the, the lobby, and you, we really want you to have your nose in the Bible. A lot of you have your nose in your phone because you have your Bible on your app. That's great, but let's follow along in Mark chapter 3 as Jesus gives us a different perspective on family. This is called the unexpected family. Look at verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the crowd, the great crowd, heard all that he was doing, they came to him. This is the first time that Mark uses the, the adjective great in front of crowd. Up until now, he's just called them the crowds. There's actually three groups of people you're going to continue to see throughout the book of Mark there's the crowds, or we could call them the fans. And as you many of you know, fans are fickle. Uh, we'll get to that in a bit. There's also foes, those who stand in the way of Jesus or try to put claim on Jesus, try to put their agenda on Jesus, or don't like it when Jesus gets in the way of their agenda. And then there's the followers or the family of Jesus. And this crowd is called Great now by Mark because it seems that Mark is wanting us to see that there's a shift that took place. It was, the crowd was primarily from the region that they were in, Samaria in particular, and now it's drawing from many, many regions. the North the south, the east, and the west, and these regions don't represent just Jewish people. Now the Gentiles are being attracted to Jesus. So there's a, he calls it great crowd, and it seems as though Mark is wanting the, the reader, the hearer, to think of Isaiah's prophecy uh, in Isaiah 49, spoken many, many years before Jesus ever showed up on the scene as Isaiah in chapter 49 is referring to and helping people come to expect what the servant of the Lord will be like, what the Messiah will be like, of which we now know it's Jesus. And so he says this in verse 6 of Isaiah 49, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the, up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. We're going to come back to that. It's important. He's saying the servant of the Lord is going to raise up tribes of Jacob and bring back, as it were, the remnant of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations. Meaning, the people of God will not only exist for them and knowing God themselves, but also through them, the nations will come to know God. And that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Isaiah is referencing this day when God, in a sense, will redeem his people. He'll raise up the tribes of Judah to do what they were meant to do. And if many of you know the history of Israel, God started with Abram. He called him Abraham, gave him a new name because he was going to be the father of many nations. He and Sarah were given by a miraculous conception. uh, A baby by the name of Isaac was born. Uh, So we know Israel would say we we believe in the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and then Isaac had Jacob, the God of Jacob. And Jacob, as you might remember, had 12 sons who became the tribes of Israel. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. The tribes were what made up this, this people. These 12 tribes. And so the prophet here is saying there's going to be a day when those 12 tribes will be raised up again and through them they will be God's remnant people on the earth through whom all the nations eventually will hear the good news about God's redemption of humanity. And so this is about to happen. This passage here, Mark is saying, references that narrative, the fulfillment of that prophecy. So keep reading verse 9. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Remember we talked about the crowds are not a good thing in Jesus' experience. They are uh, continually making it harder and harder for him to do what he's supposed to do. And here now, they're getting so many and so close that it's even leading to them crushing Jesus. There's a crushing pressure on Jesus. If you have this vision of a pastoral setting of Jesus teaching people and they're all just gently sitting around him and going, bring it on, we love what you're having to say, that's not it. Think more of a Justin Bieber being attacked by the paparazzi, you know, Uh, or if you're older, the Beatles, just to kind of connect to your generation. But he's trying to get, I mean, this is horrible. Like they're crushing him. And, and this is a bit of a foreshadowing of what's about to happen in the future because Jesus is going to be crushed for our iniquities. That The, the crowd is going to cry out, crucify him. And when Jesus dies on the cross, our sin is put on him. And through his death, And for uh, uh, for our sins, we receive the forgiveness of sins. In exchange for our sin, we get Jesus' righteousness. So this is Mark's way of foreshadowing the crowds pressing in, crushing him to be healed. And there's going to be a day when the crowd is going to press in and crush him to be crucified so that we can be healed from our sin and that's a bit of a foreshadowing that's going on and then and whenever the unclean spirit saw him like we've been seeing throughout the entire narrative verse 11 they fell down before him and cried out you are the son of God the only ones who keep acknowledging who Jesus really is are the demons they know exactly who he is and they they know they have to submit to him so they fall down before him and he strictly orders them not to make him known now if you're wondering why he tells them to be quiet you have to listen to last week's message um, as we talk through that But what Mark wants us to understand is that the the, the heat is getting hotter. The crowd is getting bigger. The pressure is really strong. And it's going to get closer and closer to the day when Jesus is going to be arrested and killed. And what we see are these groups of people, the fans, the foes, and the family, having a different place in that narrative in terms of their role. The fans, like I said, are fickle. And uh, they really just want to be with Jesus because of what they can get from Jesus. Uh, they don't really care about Jesus because they're willing to crush him in order to get what they want from him. And as we know, fans are fickle, so they're going to go from going to him for healing to going to put him on the cross, crucify him, crucify him. They all cry out at the end. And what, what Mark wants us to understand is that the, the crowds are part of this narrative of Jesus' crucifixion. And he wants really in some ways for us to ask the question as we're reading the text, are we still only a fan? Are we we really simply after Jesus for what Jesus can do for us, what he can give us? Now, by the way, I love the fact that Jesus died for my sins. I love the fact that I get grace from God because of Jesus. I love the fact that I no longer have guilt and shame and a need to perform to be made right with God because Jesus takes away my shame. He atoned for my guilt and he performed perfectly on my behalf. I love that and I want that. But I want you to know that the more that I get to know what God has done for me in Jesus, the more I want not just what he does for me, but I want Jesus. I want Jesus. Some of you guys are fickle fans, right? You were cheered for the Seahawks the last two years, right? <laughs> fickle fans. And then, of course, when, when Russell threw the touchdown in the Super Bowl last year, you, like, you hated him, right? <laughs> and fans turned to foes real quickly. I was a fickle fan for our Orange and Blue team last week. Um, just so you know, because uh, it's the only day I cheered for the Broncos so that they would beat the, the Panthers. I was a fickle fan, but next year I will be a foe of the Broncos, right? Kay? Because I only wanted what they could give me on one day, and that is to see Cam go down. So all you Panthers in the room, I'm sorry, but I was happy last week. But I will not be their fan after that. And I want to ask you, is that how Jesus is to you? Are you just cheering him on when he makes your life great? Are you, are you for him when, he, when he's about your agenda? Are, are you saying, Jesus, I love you as long as you do what I want? What are you? Are you a fan? Or are you a foe? Don't you dare get in my way. I've got a plan, and you better not mess it up. Or are you family? And in this text, we're going to see that the family of God is with Jesus, they're present with him, and he's with them. They're for Jesus, not against him. They're for him. They love Jesus. They, they love Jesus' agenda. They love Jesus' claim on their life. They're all about Jesus, and they're obedient to Jesus. They're, for, they're with Jesus, for Jesus, and obedient to Jesus. Let's look at the first part here. Called by Jesus to be with him. Mark chapter 3, verse 13 says this. He went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he had desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Now, this is a reenactment of Mount Sinai. If you remember, God calls Moses up the mountain when the people of Israel had been rescued from slavery brought through on dry ground on the, through the Red Sea, and God said, I want to give you the commandments I have for you to live in light of the way I've asked you to, and at Mount Sinai, he constitutes the people of Israel as his people on the earth for his purposes. Listen to Exodus chapter 19, because Mark, in some ways, wants us to come back to this moment as we're listening to Jesus going up on a mountain right now. Moses is up with God, and the Lord says to him this, the Lord called to him out on the mountain, saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you up on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now keep in mind that language, there's a deliverance language, there's a setting free, that God sets his people free so they might be with him, before him, and obey him. Now therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that I shall speak to the people of Israel, he says to Moses. And as you know, God's people, Israel, the 12 tribes, did not faithfully keep God's commandments. They did not keep covenant with God. They did fail to live for God's glory and purposes on the earth. And as a result, people did not come to see the light to the Gentiles that Israel was meant to be. And so we know Jesus had to come and be the better Moses who fulfilled the law, had to be the better Abraham who gives birth to a new people, had to be really the better Israel who lives out the purposes of God. And just like Israel, God did with Israel, Mark wants to make it clear that god called israel not on any account of their own remember that Do you remember when god says to israel just in case you think that i chose you because you're amazing know that i picked you not because you had a lot of people or because you were brilliant or had it all together i chose you simply because i chose you just grace i just chose you as an act of grace so that you would never ever look back and say God chose us because of how well we behaved. He called us because of all the good stuff we'd done beforehand. And Jesus now is that picture of God calling another people to be the better Israel through Jesus Christ. And what does Mark say? He called them to be with him because he desired them. He just wanted them. And when you look at the 12 apostles, which uh, we'll read their names in a bit, but I don't have time to unpack every one of their stories, you realize that's true. These are a a group of, Of of men and the disciples as a whole, men and women, are a messy people. They don't have it together. They're not well educated in most cases, some are. One of them's a tax collector, which means he's in cahoots with the Roman government. Another one's a zealot who likes to carry a knife around with him everywhere he goes so that he can kill anybody who's in cahoots with the Roman government. Right? I mean, this is his group. Like, can you imagine? Like, hey, our missional community, like we we we've got like people who want to kill each other within it. Some of you are going, that's our missional community. Sorry. But, but, but what Mark wants us to understand is Jesus went up on the mountain and he called those whom he desired. And these are not just the 12 at this point. There's many disciples. He appoints 12 out of them. And it says he, he called them to be with them and, and he wanted them. He desired them. And I want you to hear this. God does not choose you because you're good or have it all together or a religious person or behave really well. He chooses you merely by grace. He sets his affection on you, not because of what you've done, but because who he is. A God of grace, a God of compassion, a God of mercy. And he loves to just pick people that don't deserve it. So by the way, don't forget a few weeks ago, it's, it's not the, the healthy who Jesus came for, it's the six. If you're going like, I deserve it, then I hope today by the end of the message, you'll go, I don't deserve it. That's my hope. Because if you think you deserve Grace, and you don't understand grace, because grace is an undeserved merit by God given to you simply because God is gracious, not because you're deserving. So I pray that you'll receive that today. And then He appoints twelve. It's important. This word "appoint," by the way, is the same word for "made." It should take you back to Genesis chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, God created or made the heavens and the earth. That. We understand this creation reality not as though God took something that existed and formed it into something, though he did that with man out of dirt, but that he, he created out of nothing, ex nihilo. And what, what, what Mark is saying right now about the, the 12 is that Jesus created out of nothing. He made apostles. It wasn't like they, they were the best of the group. He just made them. He made them who they were. And this is something for us to continue to remember that just like God through Abraham and Sarah made a nation out of something that couldn't happen in the natural realm, but God makes it happen because he enables them to have a baby. Just like Jesus comes and chooses based on no merit other than the fact that God is just gracious gracious and calls us into his family by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, we should remember that our our confidence in who we are is not based on what we've done, but rather what God does in Christ Jesus. It's not our doing that leads to our being, in other words. It's not, I behave really well so God really loves me, but rather, God really loves me so I behave really well. Does that make sense? Like my being a child of God, my being accepted by God, my being changed by God, my being forgiven by God leads to my doing, which is I want to obey him. And if we get that order wrong, we fall into what I talked about last week, which is an empty, life-sucking religion, which is primarily about what you do or don't do so God will accept you instead of what has already been done. Remember? Christianity has the word done written all over it. It is finished. We can rest But all other religions have do's and don'ts because if you don't do the right things or you you keep from doing the bad things, then God will not accept you. And the beauty of the cross, the beauty of Jesus, the beauty of his life is that he is our righteousness. He is our forgiveness and grace from God. He is our performance. We rest in what's been done in Christ. Changes everything. Yeah, there we go. I knew there was somebody who was going to help me clap today. Thank you. And then he appoints 12. Don't miss this. A key number because how many tribes were in the tribe of Israel, or the family of Israel? Tribes of Jacob were 12, right? So what is going on is Jesus is establishing a new family. And some of you are going like, wait a minute, you're telling me he abandoned Israel? No. Jesus is the true and better Israel, born in the line, the tribe of Judah. He has he has ties all the way back to David in terms of his lineage. So he's born into that reality, and God said he would bring through uh, the seed of Abraham, which is Jesus, the, the good news that would change the world. So it's not as though God abandoned his plan. It's that he had all along intended that the plan would lead to Jesus because everybody else would fail, but only Jesus. We live a life perfectly submitted to God in absolutely every way, so much so that when Jesus comes out of the water of baptism, the Father says, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And the beauty of the gospel, yes, is that you and I get that spoken over us in Christ. That we get the, This is my beloved Son, this is my beloved daughter, when our lives are hidden by faith in Christ Jesus. That's such an incredible thing. It's the beginning of this new people that came through the Jews out to the Gentiles, and that's us. And those 12 that he appointed was was a a beginning, again, of the redemption of all nations back to Jesus Christ. And don't miss it, not only is he appointing them, and he's appointing 12, but it says he, he appointed them so they might be with him. Please know that being a part of the family of God more than anything else is being with God. Being present with God, God present with you. Paul to the church in Rome, which is the same group of people that this is written to. He says in in chapter 8, you have the Spirit of God if you're children of God, and by His Spirit you can cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy is what he's saying. You get to say, Daddy. And I know for a lot of you, it's like, Dad's not a good thing. I have a bad story behind that. But I want you to know Jesus is wanting to redeem the brokenness of our, our earthly families. He's wanting you to have a new picture of what a parent, what a godly parent looks like. And he is the picture. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so if you're going, man, I just want to know am I loved am I accepted am I good enough, will someone finally just say over me that they're proud to have me as their own? And Jesus is saying it on behalf of the Father to you and me. That God the Father wants you, that God the Father loves you, that God the Father wants to be with you in Christ. He called them to be with him. It's interesting, Israel, when they were wandering through the desert, the one thing that set them apart from all the nations on the earth was that God was with them. Remember, Moses at one point is having a conversation with God, and God's like, I'm done. Like, you guys can go forward. I'm not going with you. And Moses goes, Moses says to God, God, if you don't go with us, we're not going. Because what else will distinguish us from all the rest of the people on the earth other than your presence with us? Please, brothers and sisters who know the good news of Jesus, please understand what distinguishes us from everyone else in the world is not how well we perform or what laws or or guidelines we follow. It's that God is with us, that his spirit is in us, that when Jesus died on the cross for our sins to forgive us of our sins, he did it to make us a holy temple, a dwelling place that is not tainted by our rebellion and sin, but rather made holy so God can come dwell in us by his spirit. And when Jesus calls his disciples to be with him, the apostles to be appointed to be with him, what he's saying is, I want you to have a, be a picture with me. I am God in your midst. I want you to show the world what God's intent is for all of us, and that is that God would be with his people. See, please don't miss this. The point of Jesus dying on the cross is not just that you might be forgiven so you can go to heaven when you die, but so that God might come dwell in you right now and be with you right now. And and I'm telling you, when he's with you, he changes you. You're a different person when Jesus shows up. You're a different person when God invades your life. You can't stay the same. And that's where Mark goes next. Verse 16, he appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. Right away, he's changing his name. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bornerges, that is, sons of thunder. How do you like that one? That'd be kind of cool. Except for what we know it's going to lead to is that eventually they're fighting over who's going to be the highest position, right? So it's almost like what God is saying in Jesus now is Jesus is going, hey, I, there's a new beginning. I'm appointing you. I'm making you what you want, and I'm even going to change your name. And, and Peter in particular, his name changed, which means rock, so how do you like that, rocky? Kind of like that one. Cephas means stone, just so you know. It's previous name, now he's rock. He went from stone to rock. Not bad. And, uh, and he, likely it's referencing Isaiah 51, 1 and 2. If you want to look that up later, you can. But it's where, where Abraham is referred to as the rock from which Israel is hewn out of. And so it seems like what, what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, just like in Abraham a people was birthed, now in Peter I'm gonna bring about a new people. And, and it's not because Peter's great, let's be clear, I already said that, uh, it's just because what, what's gonna happen is Peter's gonna be the first amongst the group, we're gonna see it in chapter eight, to proclaim Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. And, Pete, and Jesus is gonna say it's on this rock that I build my church, it's on, it's on the faith to proclaim me, ultimately, as the cornerstone, we find out later in Hebrews. That he is the chief cornerstone from which every other stone is connected and builds us up into a living household in which God dwells. And so, just like Abram was given the name Abraham, when did he get the name? Did, he give, was, did God give him the name Father of Many Nations after he had Isaac or before? Do you remember? Before. That's because God speaks into existence something that will be something that is and will do. And so before they even have a baby, he's calling him a new name for a new purpose. Same thing with Peter, a new name for a new purpose. Us in this family who are now children of God, he's called you and I children of God, not simply because we are, because we are in Christ if your faith is there, but also for a purpose of being his family on the earth. That's for him. It's with him and for him and obeys him. Now, there's some other names here. Again, I love, man, it would have been so fun to unpack everyone. I don't have the time. Uh, Verse 18, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot. Whoa, watch out. And Judas Iscariot, which his name can mean little dagger. Um, So who betrayed him? Think about that. What a way to end a list of your chosen apostles. The one who betrays which should show us that you can actually be with Jesus and still not before Jesus. In fact, I think there's a warning in here for us. Now this is in God's sovereign plan that that, that's the role Judas would play, but I, I wanna still make sure I say it, you could be in the church your entire time, your entire life, you can be sitting and teaching every week, you can be doing Bible studies, you can act the part, you can play the part, you can look like you're with Jesus the whole time and never ever before Jesus. And one of the things I want to warn us, family, is that some of you are fans who are thick who are going to turn into foes, and today you need to be rescued from that. Jesus needs to deliver you. He needs to set you free. He needs to change your heart so that not only are you with Jesus, but you'll be a family who is for Jesus. And that's the second part. And before we read this next section, I want to set it up a little bit. Mark is going to use a technique called sandwiching. It's a literary technique where you take one story and you sandwich that one story with another story, okay? So you really have two stories, but they're, they're put together intentionally with the outside parts of the sandwich helping you understand the inside, and the inside parts helping you out, understand the outside. And so they're very interconnected here. That's one of the reasons why I'm teaching this whole section together, because I really believe you have to see the whole thing together. And in this particular sandwich technique that Mark is using, the outer parts of the sandwich are Jesus with a crowd and a house and his family. Okay, those are in the outer sections. You'll see that as we go through it. The middle section of the sandwich, the, the center of the sandwich, is about the religious leaders saying Jesus is uh, basically in cahoots with the devil and is uh, basically demon-possessed and doing the work by the power of a demon. And what you see Mark is going to do is he's going to help us understand as Jesus is basically saying, no, no, I'm not bound. I'm the one who came to bind the strong man. And he's, he's going to give us this picture of Jesus coming to bind the strong man so that the family and the crowd, some of them will get set free from the demonic oppression or the evil that they're caught in so they can also be free to be Jesus' family. The flip side of it is true. These groups of people on the outside of the sandwich want to bind Jesus and make him fit into their agenda And Jesus can be bound by nobody unless he willingly submits himself to be bound, which we see at the cross. It's the only time Jesus is truly bound, and it's because he willingly goes to the cross on our behalf for our sins. So that's the literary piece we're going to look at right now. Now, what's important is that Mark is going to help us understand just because someone is blood, just because someone is in the lineage, just because someone is related, doesn't necessarily mean they're family. Okay, let's go there. Verse 20. Then he went home. This is the first part of the outside of the sandwich. Then he went home and the crowd gathered him so that they could not even eat. Look at the crowds making it even harder and harder for him. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. That's the word uh, for bind him. They tried to control him. For they were saying, he's out of his mind. Uh, By the way, in this particular day and age, if you were to claim someone as crazy or going berserk, oftentimes they assume what you were saying is you're demon-possessed. So those were often very connected in that particular day and age. And his family is thinking he's going crazy, and it even appears like they probably are a little embarrassed by him, like he might be hurting the family name. Now let me ask you, have you guys ever been surprised at Jesus' plan for your life? You ever going like, this is not the plan. I was supposed to get a ring on this weekend. Some did. Some didn't. This is not the plan. My family was supposed to turn out better than this. This is not the plan. Work was not supposed to lay me off. This was not the plan. Whatever it was, Jesus, I'm following you. I thought I, thought I was with you. I thought you were for me. I don't like your plan. Anybody there? If we're honest? Has he ever done differently than you expected? Have you ever been embarrassed by being connected to Jesus? Honestly? Have you ever felt like he's getting in the way of your agenda? Like you're kind of crowding out me. The reason why I ask those questions is because I don't want us to be too tough on his family. We can so easily be like them. I think part of what Mark wants to reveal is we're not all that different. We need to be rescued. We need to be set free. We need to be changed as well. And then verse 22, he goes on to the middle of the the sandwich. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem, by the way, that's quite a ways now, coming all the way from Jerusalem to Capernaum, so they're traveling quite a distance. Obviously, the seriousness of trying to shut down Jesus is getting really, really extreme. And they say he's possessed by Beelzebub. And by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. Do you hear what they're saying? They're like, we aren't denying the power of this man. But we are going to tell you who it's connected to. And this is not of God. And Jesus calls them together and answers them in a parabolic form and says to them in a parable, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Now, notice the reference to house here. This is the technique that is being used here. House isn't just about the kingdom of darkness, now, house is also about the places where the crowds in the family are trying to seize him and get them to do what he wants. So that's part of what Mark is doing. He's trying to help you understand. There's a connection in this passage that just as much as the religious leaders are trying to accuse Jesus of demonic activity, of which the demons are against God, so is Jesus going to say, I can't be in a family and call it family if the people in the family are against God, of who I am. Okay, so that's, that's what's going on in this little narrative. And Jesus is just basically going to say, how can, how can the one who's diametrically opposed to Satan be doing it with Satan's power? If you're saying, I'm casting out demons, shutting them up, having power over them by the very power that they have, that makes no sense. That's not what's going on here. And if it was, then you have nothing to worry about because a house divided against itself cannot stand. It's going to fall apart. But that's not what's going on. He goes on to explain what is going on. And I I wanna pause before I move forward because I wanna make sure it's clear. If you are with Jesus, then you are for Jesus. And if you say you're with Jesus, but you're not for Jesus, then you're not really with Jesus. If you're not for his, his agenda, if you're not for his purposes, if you're not willing to say it's all about you, Jesus, at the end of the day, then you really don't get him yet. And maybe you need to be set free From the evil one as well. From his deception, from his power, from the controlling nature of the slavery of sin that you may be under. Verse 27, he goes on to say, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Uh, Just to be clear, the plundering that Jesus is referring to here is. Is the setting the free setting free the captives? Is setting you and I free from the, the deceitfulness of sin, the enslavement that the evil one has over us? And he, he he's saying, I can't plunder the the strong man's house unless I first of all bind the strong man. He's actually probably referencing Isaiah forty nine, verse twenty four through twenty six, where. Uh, the, the, the question is, can plunder be taken from warriors or captives be rescued from the fierce? In other words, you can't plunder if you're a captive. You can't, you can't go get the captives set free if you yourself are bound up. But this is what the Lord says. Yes, captives will be taken from warriors. Speaking of what Jesus is going to do to set the captives free. And plunder, retrieve from the fierce. I will contend with those who contend with you. He's speaking to Israel to his people and your children I will save I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh they will be drunk on their own blood as with wine then all mankind will know that I the Lord am your savior redeemer the mighty one of Jacob this is Jesus our savior our redeemer the mighty one of Jacob the one who's come to set the captives free and in first John 3 8 we're told whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. It's no no mistake, it's no coincidence that the very first miracle that Mark records Jesus accomplishing is an exorcism. It's no mistake that Jesus has to begin his ministry years in the desert being tempted by the evil one to overcome the, the temptation of Satan. So he enters into ministry already having defeated the evil one. So that he can set us free from the evil one. That's the point. The, 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 the stronger man, Jesus, has come to bind the strong man, Satan, so that those of us who are in captivity to him through our deceit, through, through sin, through our rebellion, have submitted to him, we can be set free. And some of you are going like, yeah, we're not children of Satan. What are you telling us? Do you know that Jesus speaks to the religious leaders, very religious people, and, and he calls them sons of Satan, sons of the devil. And they go, what are you talking about? We're, we're children of Abraham. He goes, no, 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 no. You do what your father does. Therefore, de- the devil is your father because you're doing what he's been doing since the beginning. You are like the one that you are from. That's, that's some pretty harsh words to God's people when they're like, no, we're chosen. And at one point we hear, just because you're born in the line of Abraham doesn't mean you're children of Abraham. The children of Abraham are the children of faith in Jesus Christ. Those are the true children of of abraham the true children of god and so jesus is saying i need to set you free so that i can deliver you so that i can change you so that you can be with me and you can be for me and eventually you can obey me that's what's going on so verse 28 he keeps going truly i say to you speaking to the religious leaders at this point now by the way a religious leader when they're about to say something that had pretty significant oomph to it would say something like thus saith the lord Jesus doesn't say that because he is the Lord. He doesn't have to say it. In fact, when he says truly, the word is amen. We say amen all the time, right? Some of you didn't know when, when I'm preaching, you go amen. You're going, that's true. Or let it be so, or I agree. So we could use a few more amens around here. Um, so <laughs> there we go. Um, but he's saying truly I say to you, in other words, I am truth, and what I say is truth, and you better take it like the word of God. That's what he's saying. Now, in the midst of a group of fans who are fickle and foes who are trying to claim on Jesus what they want and even turn against him and falsely accuse him of being demonically oppressed or possessed, what does he say? Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, Pause there. Jesus doesn't start with condemnation. He starts with grace. I want you to hear this. So many of us, the first thing we think that's gonna come out of God's mouth is a word of condemnation. And yet God is gracious with you and compassionate with you and slow to anger and abounding in love. And the words that come out of his mouth is, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. I came not for the righteous, but for the sick. I mean, the words he speaks to you are grace-filled words. It's it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, not his condemnation. It's not shaming and guilting that gets you to repent. It's God's kindness that leads you to the one who can change you so you can repent. That's what he's doing here. He's saying, "I first of all, forgiveness to speak over even you, the religious leaders. (laughs) Pretty crazy. So he starts with good news. However... He does have a but in here, but whoever blasphemies blasphemies against the Holy Spirit, never, never, it's important, never, never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they are saying he has an unclean spirit some of you are going, okay, I've heard this talked about before, this, this like unforgivable sin, this eternal sin. I thought he said he could forgive all the sins, even whatever blasphemies they utter. Well, what is this? What is, what's, what's he talking about here? And I want to be really clear, this is not an undefinable sin, but a very clear rejection of Jesus' work by declaring his work to be the work of the devil. It's to say the spirit in Jesus is demonic and not God. It's to reject the spirit within Jesus, and in so doing, also to reject Jesus. And in rejecting Jesus, it's to re- it's reject the only one who can bring about the forgiveness of your sins. Because to reject Jesus is the only means by which you and I might be forgiven. His death on the cross is the only provision God has given that you and I might be right with God. And it's only by faith in his work, both his life and his death and his resurrection, that we might be saved. It's to reject Jesus, to reject the spirit in Jesus as though it's demonic is to reject forgiveness itself from God. It's and that's why it's a, it's an eternal sin because to to have sin and have no means of forgiving us of sin and we know a few weeks ago we talked about any sin is against god who is eternal therefore we must have a a kind of payment that can deal with the eternal reality of our rebellion and there's only one who can do that and that's jesus christ alone who is god himself made made flesh so that he might come and die in our place to reject that means you have no other hope for the forgiveness of sins so some of you go like oh wait a minute what if i've done it have i committed it well the good news is he's saying it to the religious leaders who have just claimed he's got a demon so if he can say it to them good news foe there's still room for repentance you can still come to jesus today you know some of you are like really ocd and you're like oh did i do it did i do it did i do it did i do it right and I want to make sure it's really clear. J.R. Edwards, who wrote a commentary on Mark that I've been using, he says this, anyone who is worried about having committed the sin against the Holy Spirit has not yet committed it. For anxiety of having done so is evidence of the potential of your repentance. There is no record in scripture of anyone asking forgiveness of God and being denied it. So you're going, what about me? What about me? You're in a great place. You go, I'm so prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. You sing that hymn and you're like, that's me. By the way, that's me. And you know what? I'm in a great place, because I don't want to go on my own. I don't want to face God on my own. I don't want to trust in anything else other than Jesus Christ, and yet there are days when I do, and he keeps taking me back. He keeps receiving me. He keeps applying his work on the cross to my sin, because he died once and for all, for all sin, even the sins I will commit. And so there's no way. He's got me. I'm with him. I'm for him. He's changed me. And so if you're going like, man, I wondered about that. I've always wondered. You're in a really good place. He came for the sick, not the righteous. But if you're in the room going, like, you know what? I always get it right. I don't, need, I don't need help. I can figure this out on my own. Woe to you. Can I just warn you? Pride, that kind of arrogance, that precedes fall. That precedes a rebellious heart that will never come to God. And I'm praying today that God would call you through Jesus up the mountain of repentance to turn to the only one who can rescue you and save you from your sin. And if you do, if you get that experience, If you get the experience of being called to be with Jesus and your heart's changed so that you're for Jesus, not against Jesus, and you experience him release you as a captive to be set free, then what you will do is you'll want to obey Jesus. That's the outcome of it. I'm not saying you'll perfectly obey him, but you'll want to obey him. Your heart will be inclined to obey him. You'll want to give your life for him. So verse 31, the outer part of the sandwich, we come back to it. His mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Don't miss this. The crowd's on the inside of the house. The family, quote-unquote family, is on the outside of the house. There's a great irony here that Mark's going to continue to use that kind of language, who's on the inside, who's on the outside. As you keep reading the book of Mark, you'll see that language start to grow even more, be more clear as you see Jesus begin to show who's in, who's out. There's a great irony there. The family of Jesus is not really the family. Some of you go, whoa, don't say that. That's Mary. She will be. Right now, she's not acting like it. Because the family is trying to assert their claims on Jesus. They're, they're, They're wanting to, when it says they're calling him, that means they're actually wanting him to submit to what they want him to be. Can I just be clear? Jesus will not submit to you. Jesus laid down his life and served you at the cost of his own life. He's a servant who is humble, the most humble being on the planet that's ever existed. But he he is not here to submit to your agenda. He's not here to submit to your plan. Because yours isn't good. Let's just be clear. His is the only perfect plan. Some of you are going like, no, you don't understand. I had a really good plan. Can I just give you this? God knows the plans that he has for you. They are the best. And you go, yeah, I don't like the circumstance I'm in. God thinks you need it to drive you to him. And so here's the question I want to ask, because Mark wants us to see that there's a group of people standing outside trying to put claim on Jesus, and there's another group of people that are seated at the feet of Jesus. Saying, Jesus... Put your claim on us. We're here to learn from you. We're here to submit to you. We want you to have all that we are. And they're not fully saying that yet, but we know they will say that eventually. And that posture is a posture we should ask of ourselves Where are you? Where am I? Am I standing outside the house with my arms crossed, wanting Jesus to bless my plan? Am I seated at the feet of Jesus, saying, Jesus, my life is yours? I want you to teach me. I want you to direct me. I want you to have me. I submit to you. Have your claim on my life. Now, Some of you might go, well, I'm sitting right now. Physically. (laughs) Or you might go, no, 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 really, Jeff, I'm I'm sitting right now, right now in this room before Jesus. I want to hear from him. Here's the question I want to ask. Are you sitting before Jesus all week long? Are you sitting before Jesus in all the aspects of your life? Is there any place in your life where you said, Jesus, I don't want you to have claim over that? I really think I could do a better job than you on that one. Right? Hey, let's be honest. We all have said that. We all have had those thoughts. And the thing I want you to hear is Jesus starts with forgiveness to all of us who are like that. But then he answers them. Those outside the house. Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, as pictured by those submitting at the feet of Jesus, that's what it looks like to do the will of God, is to submit yourself to Jesus Christ, to be with him, to be before him, and to want to obey him. Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister. Ladies, remember a few weeks ago, I reminded you, Mark makes a strong point of showing that the brothers and sisters, the men and the women, are disciples of Jesus sent to be the ministers of the gospel wherever he sends them. And then mother. In this moment, Jesus redefines family for us. It's not the blood. It's not the lineage. It's an interesting moment to have us Dedicate children today. We, we obviously picked this Sunday to do that because we wanted to make sure we understand that this is not a family first thing. This is a Jesus first thing. In fact, I want to be careful about that around here. Like, uh, what you hear Jesus doing is pretty radical. You, you know who his mom is, right? It's Mary. You know his brother is James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, probably at this time, 40 years after Jesus' resurrection. So he's saying, anyone who's reading this is going, He's talking about Mary. We honor Mary pretty significantly in in that day and age. And he's talking about James. He's the leader of the Jerusalem church. And he's saying, who are my mother and brothers? He's referring to them. Matthew and Luke, by the way, don't include this in their gospel. I think partly because Matthew's gospel is written to the Jews And so God used another means to lead them to Christ, but to Mark, these are a group of Gentiles in Rome, and they need to be reminded, just because you're not Jewish doesn't mean you're not Jewish. Right? Just because you weren't born in the line of Abraham doesn't mean you're not a part of the family. Because God doesn't make you family because you grew up in it. God makes you family because he bears you into it. You're born into the family by the Spirit. You're adopted by God to be a true child of God. That's how you become one. Some of you are here, you're going, I didn't grow up in the church. I don't have any Christian relatives. It doesn't matter. Let Jesus be your older brother today. Submit to him. Let him be the head of the church. Let him be the one who brings you into the family. Let him be the one who died on the cross for your sins. Come to him and be with him so you can be for him and him for you. And you can actually now have a new heart and a new life and a new family. That's what you get. And Mark is challenging the view of family, by the way. Let it challenge us too, because in the Western context, we, even Christianity, even in the church, we use language like, well, family is first. No! Jesus is first, God is first. The moment you try to make your family first will be the day you expect them to be God for you. And I'm telling you, parents, you will put a weight of God on the shoulders of your children to perform and behave well so you can feel justified in the way that you raised them, so you can feel accepted by God because you did such a good job. And I'm telling you, it will either crush them or damn you. I hope that you're okay with me saying that language, okay? It it will not set you free. It won't. I regularly hear the reason why many people are unwilling to obey Jesus' commands is because their family comes first. Please, 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 please don't make your family a scapegoat for not following Jesus. Jesus actually says later on in chapter ten, twenty-nine. Truly, truly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake or for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. I've actually heard Christian leaders on platform tear down previous Christian leaders who many of us would see as heroes in some ways of walking out in faith to lead God's people to Christ, taking significant sacrifices that of course their family had to pay for and actually throwing them down because of the sacrifices their family paid for the sake of the gospel. Now, I'm not saying, please don't hear me, that we're to not love our family, but I I will tell you this, the way to best love your family is to love Jesus first, so he'll show you how to love your family well. And I, I I don't know of anybody, I've never heard anybody say, you know, the military, they leave their family for six, nine months out of the year. What is wrong with them? Don't they love their family? Yeah, they love their family so much that they'd actually like to fight for their family so their family can have a place of freedom to grow up in. That's a way of loving your family. You want to love your family well? Love Jesus first. Let him order your life for you so you love your family with his help, with his presence, with his power. Years ago, this doesn't happen as much anymore, but you guys might do it. Who knows? But people would come to Janie and go, man, I'm so sorry for you. (laughs) I'm like, thanks a lot. Janie's my wife, for those of you who are visiting. Like, you know, Jeff travels and he speaks and, you know, that that must be really hard in your family. Like, is he loving you well? Because it doesn't seem like he is if he would go away. And she'd be like, you're not married to Jeff. God has given us the grace to do what he's called us to do as a family. So trust that he'll give us what we need as we make him first and then he'll tell us what to do with what he wants us to do in our life, in our family. Let me just be clear. I would have never moved my family to the east side from Tacoma where I raised my kids for 12 years to come restart a new church if family was first. Because it was a lot better to stay where we already had lots of friends and a nice house and lots of safety and you know, security around us because people knew us and loved us and accepted us and all that. We, I didn't come here because I said family first. I came here because I said Jesus first. And I didn't say it alone. I said it with my wife and we together prayed and our whole family prayed. And all of us took six weeks to say, Lord, what would you have us do because we want to do what you want. We believe that's the best way to care for our family. And the beauty is God gave us one heart, and we moved together. And this last summer was the richest experience I've had in my family since since we had children because we all pressed into God together. He was the center of our family. I didn't neglect my family. I led my family to Jesus, and so did my wife, and so did we together as a family. We led each other to Jesus. I say that because I want to encourage you. If you want to have a great family Understand, family is not primarily who is born into your household. Family is who gives you new birth. Blood, in this sense, is is the way you define family, but it's not the blood that's here. It's the blood that was shed on the cross for our sins to make us God's dearly loved children. And when I live for the one who died for me, not only am I with Him and for Him, but I want to obey Him more than anything else. And when I do, He will continue to lead and guide and fill us with everything we need to live a life of abundance. That's what he wants for us, family. Don't, please, 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 don't exchange your family for Jesus. Lead your family to Jesus by making him the first family that you serve. Where are you at? Fan? Cheering him on when it goes well? Reject him when it doesn't? Foe? Don't you dare mess with my plans, Jesus or family. I'm with them. I'm for them. I want to obey them. Jesus, have your claim on my life. Have your claim on my family. Have your claim on my future. Whether I have a spouse or not, have your claim on me. Whether it turns out the way I hope, have your claim on me. You purchased me with your own blood out of slavery to Satan, sin, and death so that I might be set free, forgiven, loved, part of the forever family of God, help me to live out the identity that I have in you as a child of God. Father, help us. Help us to submit to you. Father, if there's anyone in the room that's been a a fan, I pray that they would move from being a fickle fan to being a family member, that you would draw them to yourself today. For those who've been a foe and saying, I want want Jesus to, to do what I want. Don't get in my way. Lord, I pray you'd lead them to repent, that they would see that, that's a, that it grieves your heart because you have so much better for them than they could ever have for themselves. Lead them to faith in Jesus. And Lord, we pray you teach all of us to submit at the feet of Jesus, submit our plans, submit our family. We want to live for the eternal family that will never, ever die. And that's with you forever, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Welcome to the Docs of Church podcast. Doxa Church exists to see the east side and beyond saturated with the glory of God in the everyday stuff of life. For more information, go to doxa-church.com.